It is a privilege uh, to be back here. Um, my family sends their greetings. Uh, most of them are in New Jersey uh, with my family right now. Uh, we often spend the holidays uh, with my folks in Maple Shade, New Jersey, just across from Philadelphia. And uh, they might even be watching right now. I'm not even sure. Hi, if you are, all right. Um, I shouldn't have done that. Um, but uh, we, um, we are very, uh, very thrilled with what God is doing in our lives and in our ministries. Um, I've had the privilege of having Eva with me here. She is my travel companion. And, uh, you know, we've had so many hardware and vehicular mechanical issues over the last year. We decided what's one more. So she's here getting hardware upgrades uh, with braces. Um, so that's pretty cool. She thinks that's awesome. I think it's awesome, too. And uh, so she had some orthodontist appointments. So she decided to come along with and um, we are um, really, uh, I consider it an honor to speak. Uh, to my recollection, uh, it's been a very long time since we've had uh, one of our graduates speak at one of these spiritual life meetings, and to have two of them, I think is uh, just a remarkable thing. Uh, you know, uh, young people, college students, um, you are important to the cause. Your training here is so you can not only go out and give what you have received, but God really will intend for some of that ministry to be directed back towards your fellow students and the students that come behind you. And I look forward to seeing many more of our graduates come and speak in this capacity in the future. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, please. I have a burden on my heart that the Lord put on my heart, and I thought, that's a great burden, Lord. I'll preach that later on in the week. And um, uh, those that preach revival progressions, you kind of understand that. And yet, as I was uh, studying this message, there was one word in the passage we're going to look at that just um, jumped off the page. And God, very specifically, a couple weeks ago, said, no, no, this message needs to go first. Um, the theme that I have that really the Lord has placed in my heart for these next several days, and I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, what God placed on uh, Josiah Kagan's heart, uh, Pastor Kagan, how they intersect. Um, but the burden that I have stated is to free each one of us to hear the voice of God so that we can obey with power, confidence, and conviction. And I've been asking myself the question, what is it? As we endeavor to spend time with God, as we endeavor to serve God, what is it that keeps us from hearing his voice? What is it that keeps us from stepping out in obedience, depending upon God with confidence and with power? And here this evening, uh, the passage that the Lord laid on my heart is one of those things that keeps us from being what God wants us to be and doing what he wants us to do. Matthew chapter 5, um, we'll look at the passage. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 23 and 24. But before we read those verses, I want to read a couple others uh, just by way of introduction. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men. In other words, God's expectation for us is for us to pursue peace with everyone. Romans 12, verse 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. 
Here Paul is telling us that as much as it is possible on your side of the equation, the expectation of God is for us to live at peace and in harmony with those around us. God intends for our horizontal relationships to be relationships that are characterized by peace. And so that being said, our text here today says this. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24 here. Jesus is speaking and he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first. That's the word. That's the word that stood out to me. First, be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. You see, Jesus tells us here that there is one matter that takes precedence over all other forms of worship, service, and sacrifice. And that is the matter of reconciliation. One man, a commentator I found, made this statement, and I think it's very profound. He said this, how many of our churches would or should be temporarily emptied if these commands were taken seriously? I don't know about you, friends, but this book is my rule for faith and practice. This book ought to determine what I believe. It ought to determine how I act. And these are the words of Jesus Christ himself. And if we take our Bible seriously, and if we take the commands of Jesus seriously, then we must prioritize this matter of reconciliation above all else. And as he says, first, first be reconciled to thy brother. The title of my message here tonight is The Priority of Reconciliation. That brings up a question, what does it take? What does it take? This is a question I want to answer here this evening. What does it take to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it take? From this passage, I want to draw three things that it takes in order for us to exist in that relationship where we are following peace with all men. Number one, reconciliation takes perception. Uh, you could also write down awareness if you don't care about alliteration, which I wasn't sure if I cared about it or not, okay? It takes perception. In other words, you need to know that someone has ought against you. There's much I want to say about this here. Again, in the text it says, If thou rememberest that thy brother hath ought against you. The word remember here means to recall information from memory, but without necessarily the implication that persons have actually forgotten. I'm getting this from Leonidas Lexicon. He says here to remember, to recall, to think about again. I found this interesting. He says in some languages, the process of remembering is expressed idiomatically. For example, it could mean to, it could be expressed to find one's thoughts again. It could be expressed to see again in one's heart. And I love this one. It could be expressed to have one's liver repeat the words. 
Other languages are weird, all right? Um, But here he's saying, listen, if you are coming to the altar, and again, we understand this is the picture of the Old Testament, the temple sacrifices. If you take your gift that you've sacrificed and you've come up to the altar to offer this sacrifice as an act of worship to God and it comes into your mind, you remember, oh, that's right. That person has aught against me then his counsel is, leave the sacrifice there and go do business first. First. What does it mean to have something uh, to have ought against? Literally, in the Greek there, it is um, that that person has something against you. That's literally the wording there. Uh, But one commentator says this, has something against you refers to a brother who holds on to the memory of an offense of which he has been the victim. In other words, when we become aware or recall that something we've done or said has caused someone else's sense of justice to be violated, that is when Jesus tells us that we must seek reconciliation. You know, I don't know about you, there have been Several times in my life, I remember one time, not too long ago, I was talking to a pastor in George, and as I was speaking to him, he said, you know, hey, Brother Bosler, uh, we'd love to do a meeting here, but I have one little problem. When I mentioned to the church that we were considering having the war led by Bobby Bosler, one of your former Greek students came up to me afterwards. And he said, you know, um, I don't know that I can handle that, Pastor He said, the way Mr. Bosler, when he taught my Greek class, came across to us in that class, it was hurtful to me. And to be honest with you, I've had a hard time with him ever since. I had no idea. But I'm so glad that pastor told me that. I was able to have a conversation, have a phone call. And you know what? There were some chips on my shoulder there that year particularly and probably other years. I may be having some conversations after the service here tonight. I don't know. But I know it came to my attention that there was someone who was hurt by the way I said things and some things that I had done. And the desire of my heart was to do business. I dealt with that, and thankfully, we were able to completely resolve the matter, and that that was a blessing, but that's the idea here. When it comes to your attention, when you become aware that someone else has something against you. You know, over the last number of years, we talked a lot about bitterness. We talk a lot about when you are the offended one, right? When somebody does something against you, we talk about the fact that you need to have, uh, be ready to forgive right in your heart. You need to let go of it. You need to believe that God can work it together for good and, and you can, as the offended party, you must, as the offended party, let it go, give it to the Lord. Actually forgive them in your heart. But I feel like sometimes we don't talk about what you're supposed to do when you're on the other side of the offense. And I think what can subtly happen is if all we do is talk about what you do when you're the offended one and never talk about what you're supposed to do when you're the offending one, what can happen is you have a one-sided equation that Jesus never intended for there to be. What ends up happening is, well, bud, if I did something against you, that's your job to deal with it. Jesus wants both sides to engage this matter of reconciliation. But you know what happens oftentimes 
I feel like as we are, it comes to our minds that someone has something against us. We can come up with all kinds of excuses and reasons why we don't need to go to that person and be reconciled to them. Spent a lot of time over the last several days and weeks just meditating on this. What are some of the things and reasons that I've given in my own heart why I don't need to go and be reconciled to that person? And here's one. You need to be, Jesus tells us that we need to seek reconciliation whether you feel you did wrong or not. You know, notice here, he's not saying that we need to go and be reconciled to our brother when we feel we've done something wrong against someone, but when they feel we've done something wrong against them. One, uh, one uh, writer said this, often we judge ourselves by our intentions and judge everyone else by their actions. It is possible to intend one thing while communicating something totally different. Sometimes our true motives are cleverly hidden even from us. We want to believe that we are pure, but as we filter them through the word of God, we see them differently. If you need to be reconciled, good motives are not enough. It's time to go immediately and be reconciled. I found sometimes I might look and say, well, you know what? So-and-so is offended by what I did. I didn't mean that by what I did. I didn't do anything wrong. And we can assume that just because we feel justified in what we did, maybe what we did was absolutely right and what should have been done. Yet, nonetheless, that person has something against us. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to them. You may have done something legitimately wrong, or you may have been merely misunderstood, but Jesus here does not seem to differentiate between the two. In either case, a brother has ought against you. And according to the words of Jesus, the inspired word of God, you have a responsibility to take care of it. So, whether we feel we did wrong or not, we need to be reconciled. Here's another one. We need to be reconciled whether they are handling the offenses properly or not. Sometimes we can see others whom we've hurt, and they're not handling their offenses biblically. Instead of coming to you, they're going to all the wrong people. Instead of being kind or forgiving, they are angry and bitter, and it's easy to dismiss such offenses because, well, they are obviously the ones with the problem. I'm reading a book right now. I don't know if I recommend it yet or not. It's called Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by a lady named Madison Harper. Um, but it challenges us when we find individuals with um, uh, negative emotions towards us. She in the book challenges us to ask the question, why? Um, in fact, I'm going to read a quote here. She says this, The real value, perhaps, in this matter of emotional intelligence lies not in categorizing emotions, but in understanding their origins, their purposes, and the messages they carry. Emotions are signals, and by tuning into these signals, we can navigate our lives more effectively. Instead of dismissing certain emotions as purely negative, we should approach them with curiosity. What is this anger teaching me? Is this sadness pointing towards an unmet need? By reframing our approach, we transform emotions from mere reactions 
to guides. It's like this. Sometimes we can look at somebody and we did something and whether we did wrong or not, they're upset at us and we think, oh, look at that person. Look at their attitude. Look, they're, they're, uh, they're carnal. They're not handling this properly and we dismiss everything they say. But I would challenge us that we need to turn that around and we need to ask the question, why are they responding that way? Why is it that their anger is being pointed towards us? Is it possible that I can learn something by investigating this wrong response that they are having towards me. You can dismiss their claims because of emotional reactions. Or as I think what Jesus is saying here, um, you can take responsibility for their hurt and determine to do something about it. Let me put it this way. When, when we become aware that someone is angry with us, instead of dismissing their anger or accusing them of immaturity, unspirituality, or carnality, though all of that may be true, we can ask why? Why are they angry with me? And in asking that question and discovering the answer, you may find out something that you didn't realize before about yourself. You might actually grow in your ability to work with other people. So we've seen so far here, um, Jesus says that we must seek reconciliation whether we feel we did wrong or not whether the other person is handling the offense properly or not, or thirdly, whether they currently want to be reconciled or not. Many times our offense, whether intended or not, severs trust with an individual to such an extent that they want nothing to do with us. It's easy to just let them go and move on with our lives, but Jesus here is telling us that we must at least try to do something about it. I go back to that verse. I read it at the beginning. As much as lieth in you. If it be possible, right? Live peaceably with all men. And I believe sometimes there are individuals that we feel are irrecoverable. There are things that we feel are irreconcilable. And yet, because we think that there is no bridge to reconciliation, we don't even try. Jesus is saying, leave your gift at the altar. Go at least try. Next, Jesus wants us to be reconciled whether we fully understand their offense or not. Sometimes you know somebody's offended. Or at least you have the sneaking suspicion that they are, but you're not sure why. Oh, this is tough. No doubt about it. Um, you don't always know what someone else is thinking. You can't always perceive when or about what someone is grieved. But I believe this is exactly why this matter of reconciliation is so important. See, if you truly offended someone and you don't know why, chances are you'll do it to someone else too. See, I really believe that as I said earlier, if all we do is focus on the fact that the offended must process these offenses and deal with them internally, and we never get those two parties together to discuss what's going on and what happened, what will happen is those offenses will be repeated again and again and again. And Jesus here in this passage is putting the onus on the offender to go and be reconciled. You know, we can claim ignorance. Oh, I don't know what their problem is. Oh, I have no idea what's going on there. We can claim ignorance, but sometimes our ignorance is an evidence of our pride. 
we don't want to know. We don't want to see. That reminded me of something Jesus said. He was talking about the reason why he teaches in parables. And he says, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, by hearing they shall, ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears of dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart. Sometimes... The discovery of the reason for the offense is not that hard, but we really don't want to know what it is. We just don't want to know. We don't want to know. We don't want to see it. We don't want to go and have that conversation because we're afraid of what we'll find or what we suspect we'll find we do not want to deal with. If we're truly humble, we would be willing to uh, go there and have a conversation about it. Next, another reason why Jesus tells us we need to be reconciled. He, he tells us we need to be reconciled whether you think they are wrong or not. Sometimes we refuse to engage someone about their offense, uh, the offense that we did against them, because we've already predecided that they have it wrong. We know our situation better than anyone we believe. Our sincerity proves our innocence. And their offense is maybe just jealousy. Maybe it's just immaturity or whatever label we want to throw on them to make ourselves feel better. But according to Jesus here, he doesn't say whether their brother is wrong in his accusations. He doesn't say whether he got it right or whether he got it wrong. But what he does say is that he has something against us. And he does say that we are responsible to do something about it. And we can continue dismissing the offenses of others and brushing them under the rug. But we will do it at the expense of disobeying Jesus. So how do we know if someone has ought against us? How do we know if somebody's um, offended by something that we've done? This is tricky, just to be honest with you. Sometimes this is very difficult. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. The reason why I'm reading that book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, is when it comes to emotions, I have no intelligence, okay? Um, I can't read them. I can't, even frankly, I've come to understand, I don't even know my own emotions. Like, I don't get it. Emotions is just like a different language. It's like a, a pitch that my ears just can't hear. Like, emotions is just foreign to me. And so I'm learning, I'm trying to learn. And the book, to be honest with you, full disclosure, is full of a whole bunch of humanistic mumbo jumbo. And I'm trying to eat the meat and spit out the bones, and yet I'm hoping, there, I'm hoping there's some meat in there. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. We shall see, all right? Um, but listen, I, I want to take us back to that definition of rememberest, right? Um, the idea of that word remember, remember, it means to recall or to think about again. And I really do believe that there is a divine element to this matter of it coming to your mind. I believe there is an element where God brings it to your mind, and you know. You know. God has an amazing way of putting his holy finger on a situation that needs to be resolved now. And when it comes to your mind, you have a holy obligation before God to take care of it ASAP. Why am I bringing this message up here tonight? I've got more I want to say, but listen, I'm bringing this message up because Jesus said first. First, before we move on to anything else, this must happen 
first. In fact, that leads us into our second point. Not only does it take, um, uh, how do you say, not only does it take uh, a perception or an awareness of it and really a willingness to admit that it is a problem, but it also takes priority. It takes priority. Jesus said, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way first, he says. Be reconciled unto thy brother. Jesus expects us to take care of this before your worship. I want you to think about the act of offering a sacrifice. This was the uh, Jewish nation and Israelites' means of worship. This was how they showed their love for God. This was a, a matter of prayer, of communion with God. This was a matter of surrendering even aspects of their resources to God. This was an aspect, hey, we're in stewardship month, of their giving. And what I believe Jesus is saying is, listen, before you sing another note, before you pray another prayer, before you take another step of surrender before you give another red cent go go thy way be reconciled to thy brother this takes priority uh, another quote from an author he says we seek to be reconciled with such urgency not for our own sakes alone but for our brother's sake we can become a catalyst to help him out of the offense. The love of God does not permit us to allow him to remain angry without attempting to reach out to him in restoration. We may have done nothing wrong. Right or wrong doesn't matter. It is more important for us to help this stumbling brother than to prove ourselves correct. One commentator says he envisages a worshiper who is called to place interpersonal reconciliation above correct ritual. Another writer says this, or how can we think that the Lord would have anger retained even for an instant since he does not permit us to offer the spiritual sacrifices of our prayers if we are aware that another has any bitterness against us. How then may we retain displeasure against our brother? I will not say for several days, but even till the going down of the sun. If we are not allowed to offer our prayers to God while he has anything against us. And yet we are commanded by the apostle, pray without ceasing and in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It remains then either that we never pray at all, retaining this poison in our hearts and become guilty in regard of this apostolic or evangelic charge in which we're bidden to pray everywhere and without ceasing, or else if deceiving ourselves, we venture to pour forth our prayers contrary to his command. We must know that we are offering to God no prayer, but an obstinate temper with a rebellious spirit. Why does he put such a priority on this matter of reconciling with a brother who has something against you? Why does he say stop? Why does he say, um, don't dot another I, right? Why does he say that? If you, don't, if you don't clear things up, your brother will continue to be angry and you will unwittingly create the same hurt over 
and over again. My mind, I couldn't help but come to this, uh, this section of what Jesus said. He said, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Jesus takes this matter very seriously. And he makes it clear, listen, offenses are going to happen. We're human. We don't understand everybody else, right? Um, we're going to be misunderstood. And there are going to be times where we genuinely do wrong to our brother. It shouldn't happen, but it does. He's not saying that it's not going to happen. He's saying that we need to prioritize dealing with it. Whether you're the offended party or the offending party. Why? For the sake of our brother, that's why. It's not about you. College students, it's not about your reputation. It's not about your track record. It's not about your self-image. It's not about you at all. Listen, you, you men, you're going to grow up and you're going to be leaders in ministry. And guess what? You're going to hurt people. It's going to happen. You're going to hurt people. And you're going to be so tempted in that time to say, I can't do this. No, I can't do this. And you're all about yourself, friends. No, Jesus said first. It's the top priority. It is your top priority. Why don't you start now in the dorm? Listen, I know how dorm life works. I lived in the dorm. I remember, I don't even remember what it was about. I just remember a, one of my roommates let me do something and I did what he let me do. And then later on, he came to me several weeks later and just pulled me aside and let me have it because I did what he let me do. And I still don't even remember what it was, but I remember this. It was good we had that conversation. It was good we had that conversation. I remember when I was on the road with Dr. Jim, we were in Matthews, North Carolina. And I remember we, um, we did something we shouldn't have done, yet I stand by it to this day. <laughs> um, uh, Adam Burt and I, we were best friends after this in college, all right? We were traveling together, and he and I had two very different ways of communicating. I was a little bit more, say it like it is, don't care about your feelings, we need to do this, we need to do this right, and we need to do this right now, okay? He was more, well, different than that, okay? And when I would come across with things, I would come across in a very uh, uh, bossy, forthright, kind of a way. I bet none of you could ever imagine that. Um, and I was a strong personality, okay? I still am. And um, I remember at one point, we didn't really intend on having this conversation, but we ended up in, um, in a conference room there, and he looked at me across the table, and he said, Bobby, you know, every time you say something with that tone of voice you just said right there, I stop hearing a word that you're saying, and all I hear is the tone. I don't get that. I don't get that at all. But I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, this guy is weird. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what even is this? I'm not married to this guy, but he's acting like he's my wife. What in the world is this going on? This doesn't make any sense. This is kind of silly. <clears throat> These are the things that were going through my mind as he's saying that. But then I realized, you know what, our team unity is far more important than this making sense to me right now. And the cause of what we're trying to do, and I remember Adam and I, we sat there in that office. We missed a prayer meeting with a pastor, which we got roasted about later. Um, but we were there. In, actually, that's biblical. Um, that's this verse. I didn't even think about that. First be reconciled to thy brother, then go worship and pray. <clears throat> All right. 
I know to Dr. Jim it looked like we were just being immature and irresponsible. And there probably was a sense in which we could have dealt with it another time. But you know what? We dealt with it. And you know, we've been best friends ever since. I don't want to even think about what would happen if I would have just said, Adam, you're being silly. Knock it off. Or if I would have just said, okay, and just kind of walked away from that conversation, I don't even want to think about where I'd be with him today. Some of you know. Because that's what you do when you don't understand why your doormate has a problem with what you did, how you left your stuff in the bathroom. That's exactly what happens when some of you girls in the dorm, you don't even understand why they're so upset because you keep gossiping. I bet it's still going on, even though I preached on it last semester. You just don't get it. And so you don't take it seriously. And you don't think there's a need to be reconciled for one reason or another. Listen, I want you to know Jesus says first. First. And you know what? It's not about you so you can feel good. Listen, even if it's a genuine misunderstanding, even if you did everything right, something you did caused them to have something against you, and I guarantee they are not thriving. And the best thing you can do for the sake of your brother, if you love your brother, is swallow your stinking pride and go to that person and say, can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? It's for your brother. It's for your own conscience. Yes, it is for you, but you're not the point. And it's for the sake of all others who might be hurt if you don't have this conversation and learn from it. Let me say this, young people, any person for that matter. If you continue, I'm going to use a metaphor. If you continue to see blood in the water behind your speedboat, if that is something every time you look in the rearview mirror and turn around and look and see blood and chunks of flesh floating in your wake behind you, you need to stop and ask a question, why is that happening? You follow me? Listen, so, listen, I understand. I have a strong personality. It's very easy for me to offend people. I understand how that goes. And listen, there are times when in life i got to stop and i got to say, whoa, hold on a second. Uh, a couple years ago in my Greek class, I think it was two falls ago, I realized all of the Greek students coming into my class are petrified and it's not because it's a hard class. They are petrified because of me. And I thought from an academic standpoint, that's not a healthy learning environment for one. And for two, that's just not right. And so I know I endeavored to make corrections. And I wasn't trying to just, you know, um, be like this generation where everybody's a winner and just be patronizing or whatever. But I tried to come into the class and say, all right, I really feel right now about telling them how poorly they did on this test. And you know what? It comes out sometimes. But you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore because some students take it in a way I never intended. To be honest with you, I'm going to let you in on a secret. When it comes to Greek class, when I tell you how poor a job and how sorry your performance was, that is me trying to motivate you. <laughs> if I tell you you're the dumbest class I've ever had, it's because I believe in you. Because <laughs> I want you to become the smartest class I've ever had, all right? Some of you think I would hate to be a child of Mr. Bosler. I'm growing. I'm growing, all right? Don't ask Eva, but I'm growing. 
But I really want to challenge you, if you continually find people who are injured all around you and it seems to happen quite regularly, I would do a little inventory. And I would try to find out why. Because if you're driving a boat down the river and there's chopped up flesh coming out, it's because you're doing it. You need to figure out how to put that to a stop. Reconciliation, what does it take to be reconciled? It takes perception. You need to be aware of what's going on and not explain it away. It takes priority. It needs to be the very first thing that you do. Let everything else drop if you can first be reconciled to your brother. Thirdly and finally, reconciliation takes a price. It takes a price. Really, the price that I'm speaking about is humility. He says here, be reconciled to thy brother. What does it mean to be reconciled? The idea of that word, the root idea of that word is to change or exchange. And the way one uh, classical Greek lexicographer put it was this way, it's changing enmity for friendship. It is reconciling one to another. Um, another commentator, actually this is in uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, he said it means to reconcile in the sense of seeing to it that the angry brother who neither seeks nor envisages reconciliation renounces his enmity. You know, <clears throat> It's a two-sided process, he goes on to say, in which the hostility is overcome on both sides. In other words, Jesus is asking us so many times, we say, well, you know what, they're upset at me, that's their problem. But Jesus says, no, I'm about to make it your problem. And your responsibility is to go to that person, drop everything else, go to that person and have a conversation whereby you can come to some sort of understanding where he is willing to drop his enmity against you. That's not always possible. I know that's what some of you are thinking. And I'll get to that in just a second. But I want to ask a question. Why is it that we don't do this? Jesus wants us to. He told, tells us this is top priority, but why don't we do it? Why don't we humble ourselves in reconciliation? I think it's because we're afraid many times. I think we fear that to go to an individual and to speak with them about something they have against us would be to admit failure. We don't want to project an admission of failure on other people. We don't want to do that. Or it could be that we fear it would project weakness. You've been there, right? Especially you older folks, you adults in the workplace. You know, you really want to get promoted. You want to show yourself as a strong, assertive player in your business and to reconcile with someone. Now, now granted, I do have to say this. He is speaking of a brother. God doesn't necessarily expect us to go to every leftist, woke, crazy person out there that is triggered by you preaching the truth of the scripture. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a brother in Christ, someone who serves the same God that you serve and uh, might even be implying that they're in, in the same organization, though I think this certainly applies well beyond an individual church or organization here. But we don't want 
to project weakness. If we come to an individual and even start a conversation whereby it would be possible that could come up that we did something that was wrong, we fear that it would say to this person that I am weak. Sometimes we're just unwilling to do that. I think sometimes we don't want to have this kind of a conversation because we fear it would invite unfair criticism. You know, once you open that door, how can you close it? It's a can of worms, right? Once it gets out on the street that so-and-so who may be in the dorm has offended everybody in the dorm, right? Right? Once it gets out, oh, he took Brother Bosler's message seriously on Sunday night. He's coming and talking to some people. Let's all pile on, boys! We fear that people will smell blood in the water, right? Like piranhas, they'll just start shredding us to pieces. Sometimes we feel like it would hurt the cause. We've got to be very careful that we don't value the cause above our own obedience. What in the world? Okay, so let's just say God in this message is speaking to you about a particular individual. He's bringing it to your mind, right? Somebody that you know, they're, they're upset at you. Whether you did wrong or whether you were just misunderstood and you're thinking through in your mind, okay, so somebody has something against me. What in the world am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say to that person? I've got a suggested quote for you here. I think this could be powerful. I understand I may have done something to hurt you. And I value you too much to let that thing stand between us. So could you please tell me what's wrong? If I've done wrong, I want to get it right. Is that too hard to do? Is that an admission of failure? Is that right there? catastrophic to the cause? I would argue it's not. You know, some of the greatest people that I respect in my life are people who have been willing to tell me they were wrong. People who've hurt me. People who've done something against me. And it genuinely caused me pain. And yet later on in a conversation of some sort for that person to say, I was wrong when I said that. I am sorry. You might be tempted to think that that person's respect level would go down for you, but I would argue their respect level would go through the roof for you. I try to make it a policy on my team that when I cross the line and when I hurt my guys, sorry guys, it's going to happen. I'm going to try not to let it happen. By the way, Luke and Austin are going to be traveling with me this semester. They're doing a little bit with Dr. Jim, and then they'll be with me. Pray for them, please. In many ways, pray for them. But you know what? I try to make it a habit that if I realize that I crossed the line with one of my guys in my urgency to a point that it was stinging and it hurt them, I try to make it a policy to go to them as soon as possible and say, hey, listen, what I said to you there, I, I, maybe it's I genuinely didn't intend it that way. I was just trying to help you understand the urgency of what needed to happen. Or there have been times where I've had to say, you know what? I didn't have victory in my spirit when I've said that. You know where I got that line from? Dr. Jim. One of the best things, one of the best examples I think I've ever had regarding this matter. 
And I want to urge you, when you say that and when you ask that person, what's wrong? Listen. Truly listen. In fact, I would say you need to listen without interruption. You need to listen without critique. You need to listen without defensiveness and truly endeavor to understand why they have something against you. Guarantee you'll learn something you didn't know before. You know what can happen sometimes is you're coming across in a way you don't realize you're coming across. I had this happen to me even last fall. There's a situation with a couple individuals here that I, I said something and I didn't realize and I guess I'm not aware of how my face comes across sometimes. I'm thinking urgency and they're looking at my face and thinking, Brother Bosler is ticked off and fuming right now. And many times my face isn't reflecting what's really in my heart. That's really annoying. I feel like, Lord, I need a new face. What's going on with my face? I've had my wife say that a couple times. Like, do you realize what your face looked like when you said that? I'm thinking, I didn't mean that. I really didn't mean that. Please just put a bag over my head. (laughs) But you know what? I learned something. I learned I need to be a whole lot more conscious about what my face says. Even more conscious than the tone or the words that I say because my face can hurt people. My face is a lethal weapon. And your face might be too. Yours might be your tone. You might have grown up in a home where certain kinds of tones are what you use to get things across. And you don't realize that in other parts of the others. I grew up in Jersey, all right? Right, Tristan? In Jersey, you look at two people, think they're about ready to wring each other's neck, and they're just having a good conversation about the, uh, about, about the eagles, right? Well, I shouldn't mention that here today, right? But... Uh, We just kind of say things the way they are. People out there are very nice. I've discovered that in my later life. Um, But, uh, you know, there is a a forthrightness that people can have. And I've even known of a few families here in this church. Just the family culture is just say it like it is. And they can just go and in their relationships of life not realize that they're hurting other people. And they can be completely oblivious to it. But if they would just sit down with someone and say, hey, listen, I hurt you. I don't know why. Can you please tell me why? Because I want to grow. I want to learn. I don't want to hurt you anymore. You might learn that it's your tone or your face or a certain set of vocabulary words or phrases that you use that is incredibly offensive to other people. Endeavor to understand, but I would say the greatest factor is humility. Um, One of the writers that I, I studied in preparation for this message, I found this incredible. He gives sort of a, a, a an actual account of a conversation that he had with someone about this. He, he, he said, on certain occasions, I've approached people I've hurt who were angry with me, and they've lashed out at me. I've been told I was selfish, inconsiderate, proud, rude, harsh, and more. My natural response has been to say, no, I'm not. You just don't understand me. But when I defend myself, It only fuels their fire of offense. This is not pursuing peace. Standing up for ourselves and our rights will never bring true peace. Instead, I've learned to listen and keep my mouth shut until they have said what they need to say. If I don't agree, I let them know. I respect what they've said and will search my attitude and intentions. Then I tell them, I'm sorry, I've hurt them. Wow. 
Wow. Write that down in the flyleaf of your Bible. Go back and get the sermon and write it down later. I'll text it to you, okay? That's amazing. He says, other times they're accurate in their assessment of me. And I admit, admit, you're right. I ask your forgiveness. I remember one time I was sitting in my office over there and I had another individual in that office with me and he looked across the office to me and he said this, he said, Brother Bosler, I think you're proud. I think you don't love people. And he said, I think you're in the ministry for your own fame and reputation. And I thought, whoa, (laughs) wow, what is this? It's actually a guy who traveled with me. And um, I remember I sat there and I thought, wow, it took him a lot of courage to say that. And there must be something in me that is giving that vibe across to him. And I looked at him and I said, God has been doing a lot of work in my heart about love. And to be perfectly honest with you, I am very selfish. And what you're picking up on and what you're reading is accurate. And I'd really like to ask you to pray for me in that. said, as far as being in the ministry for myself, no. I'm I'm in this because God called me to be in this. That's not necessarily true. But I really appreciate you sharing that. You know what's amazing? Prior to that conversation, we were at odds pretty regularly. After that conversation, there was more to the conversation than that. Unbelievably, that all went away. It all went away. Good friends to this day. I'm saying this to say the greatest ingredient in seeking reconciliation from a brother has been offended, whether they got it exactly right or they're completely wrong, is humility. If you come into that thing proud, you're going to make it worse. Apologize for any actual infraction or injustice or per- perhaps apologize for how the situation hurt them. Now, I do got to say, don't apologize for something you didn't do. But at the same time, don't dismiss their perceived offenses. There was something you did that caused grievance and that grievance is real. Your humility will add tremendously. Offer restitution if applicable. Maybe perhaps even offer a plan on how to avoid future offenses or repetition of that hurt. Now, I I do need to give you, I've given several illustrations and story from my own life where this has resulted in restoration, uh, which is really the goal of this attempted reconciliation. But you do need to understand that your apology may not immediately restore trust. You've got to be ready for that. You may have done everything right. You may have truly, fully, and completely owned up to whether it was a true offense or something that you could have done better, whatever it might be. Just because you said, I'm sorry, doesn't mean they're going to trust you. But you have at least started the process of rebuilding trust with them. And I'd much rather start the process than never start it at all. Understand that your humility and continued honesty are the only ways to rebuild that trust. And what you think will destroy your reputation in this conversation is actually 
what will build it. I would encourage you to also ask them if there's anything else, because chances are sometimes there could be more than you realized was there. But even there, recognize there may be things that they don't feel free to address with you upon first conversation. Value transparency and honesty, even if it makes you uncomfortable. If you find yourself in a conversation with someone like that one, I could have looked at that guy and said, dude, you are not under authority. Dude, it was not right what you just said to me. I could have gone off on that former team member and I could have told him a dozen reasons why he should not have said what he said to you, me. And you know what? I would have been right. But I wouldn't have won with him. And we wouldn't have been reconciled. Listen, can I just say this? If you find yourself sitting here in this room and you're an offended one, I'm not telling you to go on everybody who's offended you. Please don't do that. I don't want to make a mess here tonight, okay? Although my spittle kind of did. Um, (laughs) You need humility just as much as the offender needs humility too. I have a whole message I preached in FIT a few months ago on the matter of reconciliation from the offended side of things. Both sides have responsibility. But listen, in that conversation, really, you need to value when when they're telling you why they have something against you, you need to value transparency and honesty. Because you know what? If you don't have transparency and honesty, they're just building a case against you. And they will continue to build that case against you until you talk about it, until they're truly able to share everything in their heart with you. One thing and I'll be done. Reconciliation, it takes perception, right? Being aware, it takes priority. Um, here, it takes, um, it takes a price, right? This matter of humility. Reconciliation really is one major means by which God brings revival. Um, 2020, COVID hit, right? I found myself in Texas. My whole, the rest of my tour canceled. And uh, one of the weeks that I was supposed to go to up soon, um, I contacted them. They were nearby to where we were. And I said, hey, could we come and just park there? I don't know how long we'll be there. You know, it's only... couple weeks to flatten the curve, right? And so we'll only be there for a short time. We ended up being there for two or three months, all right? And um, while we were there, I developed a great friendship with this pastor. We spent every day together. We did all kinds of things there in the church building. I helped him with things. He helped me with things. I preached for him. And uh, it was just a great time. Our kids got to know each other really well, spent all kinds of time out in the woods playing. In fact, his son almost chopped my son's finger off with a box cutter the greatest ways to bond with each other, you know? And um, while we were there, he said, hey, why don't we do a revival meeting? Any of the folks from the church who feel comfortable coming, they can come. Everybody else can watch on live stream. And uh, this would be great. We got an evangelist here. We'll use you as an evangelist. Let's do a revival meeting. Well, okay, sure, that's great. And uh, he was going to preach some of them. I was going to preach some of them. That's great. That's awesome. Hey, at least we're doing something, right, in the midst of this difficult time. And one of the first messages I preached was a message entitled Reconciliation and Revival. Honestly, I have not, I didn't know anywhere near what I know now. The study was kindergarten compared to what I've studied since then. But I do know as a part of my message, I read these two verses that I I explained to you here tonight. 
God began to do something in that pastor's heart and in his life. I had no idea what was going on. I just preached. And um, I honestly felt like I could have done a whole lot better in the message. I felt like it was a little bit of a dud, you know, and an egg that I laid on the platform. And, um, well, <clears throat> apparently God had something to do with that message. Um, this church evidently had had a number of people who'd left for a variety of different reasons. And pastor felt that it would be really important for him. He felt God. God brought it to mind to him. For him to go to these people who still lived in town to have a conversation with them. He went to some and he found that, you know what? We did you wrong. And he said, I'm sorry. There were some to do any wrong, but he talked to them and he had a good conversation. And honestly, though, the, uh, there was not restoration and there wasn't necessarily even trust rebuilt. It, he had done what Jesus told him to do. And he had probably half a dozen conversations like this with different people around town. He started telling me, man, I called up my brother. And he started telling me all the different people he started contacting that he had offended that he needed to reconcile with. And you know what? Probably, I think if I have my chronology right, not too long after this, we had a prayer meeting in the morning. Any folks from the church were invited and he just said, hey, say something before the prayer meeting. And I explained the basic concept of God dependence for spirit enablement. Just very basic, Colossians 2, 6. Very quick, very slight. Pastor told me, the barn doors burst off of his spiritual life through that short little conversation. He said, I've never understood revival truth like this, like I have been given hope, like I've never been given before. This started a journey, a pilgrimage for this pastor that has resulted in unbelievable personal revival and even revival in the church. Because one guy was willing to first be reconciled with thy brother. I don't know how the Lord may have worked in your heart here this evening, but I do know this before we move on to anything else this week. We need to do this first. <clears throat> 